Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The U.S. economy keeps roaring along as war continues to rage in Ukraine. Israel launches its ground offensive against Hamas uh, in Gaza and Iran strokes tensions across the region through its proxies and Washington responds. A big week for third quarter earnings. Lockheed Martin decided against pursuing the contract for the U.S. Air Force's next batch of tanker aircraft, prompting its partner Airbus to decide that it will compete on its own for the award. United buys more Embraer 175s and Saudi Arabia considers Dassault Aviation's Rafale. And our friends at Beta Technologies flew their Alia all-electric aircraft 2,000 miles uh, from its headquarters in Burlington, Vermont, to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida with a historic flight over Washington to become the first all-electric plane to overfly the nation's capital. Among the four stops on the trip was Andrews Air Force Base. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are our Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, fresh uh, from his uh, vacation. Sash, welcome back. Uh, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory uh, Consultancy. It's great to have the band back together again. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. It's great to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be on, Vago. Thank you. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Okay, uh, an enormous uh, amount of stuff to try to cover uh, this week, given that it's uh, earnings and there were interesting earnings indeed. Ron, uh, first walk us through how markets performed uh, overall, right? I mean, folks are seeing increasing volatility, concerns about a wider war in the Middle East. Iran and America are trading uh, shots at this point, uh, you know, and, and the war in Ukraine is is still ongoing. Walk us through what the sentiment on the street is at a time when the U.S. economy is still doing great. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, the S&P this week was down 2.5%, um, but the VIX was up uh, over 21. And right? just to remind everybody, uh, you know, the VIX was uh, 12 uh, in the middle of September. Uh, and, the, and the VIX, again, is this, it's a measure of volatility. People call it the fear index, but yeah, it, it basically goes up when the market gets volatile or, or goes down. Uh, and that's what what you're seeing happen now. Oil prices have been pretty consistent, you know, given you know the tension in the Middle East. Typically, oil prices are, you know, they, they rise with that tension. But WTI is trading around 85, Brent's trading around 90, and you know, if you, you've been listening listening every week, that's where they've been for a while, right? So there hasn't been much of a change there. The ten-year yield is about you know 4.9 percent. It's been there now for a while, so we haven't seen you know any kind of weird move in yields or energy prices or anything like that. Um, but the S and P was heavy, um, and then if you look across our group, and we can go into the details later when we talk about earnings, um, pretty much everything was down. Um, if you look at you know commercial names and and defense names, uh, pretty much everything was down. Um, and if you try to you know ferret through it all. Can you say anything? You know, perform better. Um, you know, Raytheon did because they bought back a bunch of shares. The business jet manufacturers did because biz jets are doing better than people thought. But kind of broadly, you know, if you try to you know ferret through commercial defense, pretty much this the, the heaviness on the sector was you know a um, didn't discern between either side and either half of the group. 
Um, Sash, uh, give us your sense from a, a European uh, standpoint uh, and how some of these reverberations are impacting uh, the European market. Yeah, well, it's been, um, it was a very, very mixed week last week. I've got to, I've got to be honest. I mean, the overall uh, aerospace and defense sector are up about a percent and a half. And, um, and if you, civil, in fact, they're very evenly spread between civil and defense. But I, um, and that partly reflected who was reporting and who was surprising on the upside. So MTU that we're going to talk about later, MTU Aero Engines, um, they were up 6.3%. They were way the standout performer on the week, uh, although they gave back quite a lot by the end of the week. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we had some really strong performances by the defence companies, Kongsberg, the Norwegian company that's really a, a you know, near pure play missile company by the standards of uh, European aerospace. I mean, you know, they, they were up 4% as well. Um, and I, it's, it's quite hard to, to work out now how some of these stocks are going to trade through the rest of the year. The, the, the defence stocks over the last month or so have generally outperformed the civil stocks. But a lot of it has been, um, or you know, a lot of the, the individual performances has reflected very, very stock-specific news flow. So, you know, Rolls-Royce uh, reports a, um, a restructuring charge. They've got a capital market say coming up, coming up in a couple of weeks, and um, they trade up sort of irrespective of, of how the rest of the market is is doing at the moment. But I mean, I've, I've been, I was quite surprised by um, when we got to the end of the week, because we had some big swings in the week, just how consistently strong the sector was overall. Um, and, you know, I, I would say, I mean, d- defence, that's obvious, but civil stocks, you know, the momentum in civil stocks, the the trading, the earnings momentum is still very, very good, particularly driven by aero engines. The big question, I think, going into 2024 is going to be, you know, we're going to be back to the same old question. Actually, we asked at the beginning of this year and the beginning of last year, which is just how much can you nail on the, um, the production targets from either Airbus or Boeing? Um, right. Because some of the mood music coming out of the aero engine businesses suggests they're all going to fall a bit short. Uh, it, it, indeed, and we're going to get to earnings uh, as uh, their, uh, uh, you know, impact the piece on on both sides of the Atlantic, given the partnerships, right? Safran and GE, uh, for uh, example, and obviously RTX uh, partnered uh, with uh, uh, European concerns. Uh, Richard, uh, really quick, in part because we don't know where else to drop this, right? Lockheed reported uh, last uh, week, and before we uh, get to earnings, um, Lockheed Martin uh, has courted Airbus for very many decades. Uh, right. I mean, earlier in our career, I mean, I remember interviewing uh, the great Mickey Blackwell when he was Lockheed's aeronautics chief about why Lockheed would be an ideal right in the in the uh, you know early half of the 90s or the middle of the 90s. Why it would be you know a perfect partnership for Lockheed uh, to be the North American arm of Airbus. Uh, uh, ultimately, um, they had partnered uh, with Airbus uh, to bring the internationally successful A330 MRTT, the multi-role tanker transport, to the U.S. market. Uh, but in the wake of the Air Force's new tanker approach that they unveiled in March, Lockheed uh, um, this week decided against going after the contract, and Airbus is going to compete on its own. Is you know was it was that a a good decision on the part of Lockheed, and b does Airbus have an ability to be able to compete and win this? Without an American partner, I would note Fincantieri, the American arm of an Italian shipbuilder, successfully competed, uh, you know, beat American companies uh, with its design for the frigate contest. So, you know, j- just because you weren't able to compete for it a couple of years ago doesn't mean you couldn't be successful in the future. You know, there were always enormous headwinds. I mean, you have this hot production line. It's costing Boeing a lot of money, but it's a hot production line. 
KC-46. Um, it's a lower cost tanker to build in, or aircraft to build uh, mostly, you know, again, with losses absorbed by Boeing because it's a lighter, you know, smaller plane. Uh, and then you had this challenge of creating a new FACO uh, line and the associated, uh, you know, infrastructure around that. That's an upfront cost. And then, oh, by the way, you had to make two companies whole in terms of profitability. So the challenge was always enormous. And then on top of that, all of a sudden they cut the number by half or something like that, which made it virtually impossible from Lockheed Martin's perspective. And I think Lockheed Martin had come to regard aerial refueling as something of a commodity anyway, hard to differentiate yourself the way you couldn't say combat aircraft or something. Uh, so I, I thought it was inevitable that they would back out. Can Airbus really compete on their own without an industrial and political constituency? I mean, you know, that's the way they've done it in the past when they've gotten 295s or, uh, sorry, 235s with the Coast Guard or with, um, you know, UH-72s uh, for uh, the Army. You know, you create a footprint here and they've done great with that. And they do have one now with single aisles, but that's not what's being procured. So how do you create any kind of industrial presence when you're only building 75 jets? I This, this looks really difficult. So I think they're there for pricing pressure. Um, and that's probably a worthwhile strategy, just as it has been in the past. Because, of course, uh, you know, the only way to make Boeing whole after you know, losing seven billion so far up front with KC forty six is to extend the program beyond one seventy nine at a price that is better than what they've gotten for that first batch. Uh, as as and uh, let's not forget, right? I mean, the Jet Zero and a lot of other work the Air Force is doing to shape what they want that future tanker airplane to look like, including stealthy attributes, uh, right? Uh, if it's going to be uh, penetrating and if you're preparing for uh, an Indo-Pacific uh, operation. Uh, just a uh, quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra-intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Um, does anybody want to take a quick uh, bite of that before we go to earnings? Ron, Sash? Yeah, I, I've just got a, um, a question really based on Richard's comments just then. I, I fully understand why Airbus would want to compete just to put some price pressure on Boeing. Um, Airbus is pretty happy to do that uh, uh, you know, with, with various uh, aircraft in its, in its product range. And I mean, that's a totally rational strategy. But ultimately, competing for big Pentagon programs is an expensive process. It will cost tens of millions of dollars to do. Um, if Airbus doesn't have a chance, what, what else is in it for them? Who is going to reward them for putting price pressure on Boeing, bringing the overall cost of the US taxpayer down? Um, or is it just that they do that because, uh, you know, Boeing is, is such a deep enemy that anything they can do to hurt Boeing is, uh, is worthwhile, even at that sort of cost? You know, I think there might be that. There might also just be um, the brand equity, if you will, of competing for the biggest tanker contract uh, requirement, not the contract, but requirement in the world. Uh, other than that, you raise a good question. It just might not be cost effective for them to spend all that money. But, you know, there are many kinds of bids. There's the, uh, you know, there's the mountain of re mountain of work and the the giant forklift full of stuff that's uh, that's submitted or there's the 
in Manila envelope that goes to the, the contracting officers on the day. Oh, so I think there's a way to do this on the cheap and, you know, just put that pricing pressure just to have it out there. Ron, uh, let's uh, over uh, to you, given that we've got so many earnings uh, to discuss. Uh, and I know that all of us are going to want to bite at uh, all of these uh, apples. Walk us through kind of your your broad sense on earnings uh, takeaways. You know, what are the common themes and what were some of the more specific themes? Yeah, so you think about common themes. Um, the aero aftermarket is still doing quite well. Um, aero aftermarket providers are are getting pricing. Um, you know, you're specifically you look at the engine market. Um, uh, the the folks that make uh, engine parts, um, both the OEs and their suppliers are you know doing doing fine. Um, yeah, so that's you know on the aftermarket side. On on the OE side, you know, Boeing reported numbers that were, I would say, on the commercial side, maybe in line maybe even modestly better than people were thinking. However, defense was really bad again, right? I mean, defense was, they took another charge on uh, uh, on, the, on the on the presidential uh, aircraft, the BC-25. Um, it is really kind of mind-numbingly unbelievable how expensive that thing's turning out to be. Um, and then if you just look broadly across defense, what we saw for the most part was defense contractors had good top-line growth and the ones that are more exposed to the needs of the current conflicts are, you know, doing you know incrementally better than those that aren't. Although relative to street expectations, margins didn't come in where people thought they should, right. and, and a lot of that still has to do with labor supply chain and all the stuff that we've talked about a lot in the past. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you know, General Dynamics reported and they reported Gulfstream numbers, Textron reported Textron aviation numbers, um, and uh, they they were actually quite good. Um, and coming into the year, I think investors were. Uh, maybe had some fear percolating about what's going to happen in the business jet market because it is normalizing to kind of, for lack of better words, more normal le- norm, normal levels as compared to the white hot levels we saw during COVID. Right. Uh, but order activity is good. Backlogs are good. Pricing is good. And, and so, I mean, on that front, business jet manufacturers seem to be doing um, uh, better than, than, uh, than I think people had, had thought. Uh, and then I think really one of the big headlines was in this very company specific RTX technologies uh, had, had some very company specific stuff going on. Um, you know, it's been a, a name uh, of a lot of you know investor intention and kind of back and forth. And it's kind of spilled, spilled over to airlines and their suppliers. This whole Pratt and Whitney issue with the disks and the cracks in the disks and, and engines coming out of service and airplanes on ground. Um, so they, they, I think they tried to, you know, kind of get everybody calm, uh, by saying, Hey, we're going to buy back in an accelerated you know, buyback program, um, you know, $10 billion worth of shares, which is roughly kind of 9% of their float and no big surprise. The stock was up 9% on that. What's kind of interesting. If you peel that back and you know, kind of the feedback we got from some investors were on the fixed income side, some of the fixed income investors we spoke to were. Um, not very pleased with that because it ties up their balance sheet for a couple of years. And then two, if you just look at the realities of the buyback, given that they're going to fund it with debt and you know where interest rates are now, you know, for a, a company like RTX, they're probably going to pay 6% or so for that debt. Um, it's actually not all that accretive when it's all said and done. So it is a way to return cash to shareholders, but in the end, it's, it's really not all that accretive. And, and then if you look back over, you know, kind of what's changed since, you know, their call six weeks ago, and now really not a heck of a lot. Um, we'll see a, a kind of a waterfall of airworthiness directives coming out regarding GTFs and things that have to get done. 
Um, but that was, you know, they were the best performer of the week, largely because of that. And uh, you still put GD uh, in a uh, good good position overall, right? I mean, they were yeah, no, 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 yeah, G- GD, yeah, you know, GD. If you look at general dynamics relative to some of the defense contractors today, um, just maybe frame it this way: coming into this year, but kind of before everything kind of went the way it did, you know, they were looking at their combat systems business to maybe be flattish up a little bit. You know, it's growing mid-teens. Um, you know, so when you look at their portfolio broadly, first, let's start with Gulfstream. Gulfstream is doing just fine, right? I mean, it's sort of the marquee business jet manufacturer. Sorry to the other guys, no disrespect, but it just is. That's a fact. Um, and it's doing it's doing doing great. And then next, you look at their naval business. It's really a play on projecting power in the Pacific. And it's you know, it's it's had its operational difficulties, but the demand signal's huge there and, and it's growing. And now you look at their combat business, it's growing because of the unfortunate stuff that's going around uh, in the world. Um, so we, you just look at their portfolio relative to the other defense contractors. They just have a higher concentration of stuff right now that is growing because of everything going on in the world. And just uh, very uh, quickly, and Sasha, I'm going to come to you uh, in a second. Uh, you met with uh, Boeing uh, Chief Financial Officer Brian West, uh, and you said you came away encouraged uh, from that meeting. Yeah, we had um, we had a really we had a really really pleasant dinner with him. To be honest with you, um, it was us and a group of investors, and maybe 20 of us there. And you know, Brian, um, you know, to his credit, really kind of threw the cards on the table and said, "Hey, you know what? This is what we're dealing with. This is what we got to do." Um, you know, if we're going to get to our financial targets, this is what we have to do, kind of A, B, and C. Kind of, if we don't do that, we won't get there. If we do do that, we will get there. Um, he wasn't shy about addressing, you know, challenges in the defense business. Although I'll say most people didn't want to talk about defense. Um, you know, Boeing's a funny name that way, right? They have a very large defense business, but most investors really get, you know, very focused on, you know, 737 and 787, even though the company does a lot more than that. Um, but even there, I mean, he wasn't blaming, you know, previous managers of this or that sort of like this is the challenge in front of this this is what we got to do this is what we misjudged so i think it was a really refreshing conversation um that, that to, to be blunt pago that wasn't you know was sort of you know kind of like a no bs conversation this is what's going on this is what we got to do that's how we're trying to do it um and that that's just really refreshing to hear from the management team because a lot of times you know and boeing's been guilty of this in the past um you, you don't they don't answer questions they go around corners or this or that so it was um yeah you know kind of i walked away from that dinner saying hey this is this is you know this is good and what's interesting about him in particular he's an outsider right um he was doing other things you know he was in the industry a while back at you know ge aircraft engines and then um right. so he he has a different take i think on stuff than someone that's been grew up at boeing or had been on boeing's board for a long time right uh, so so I think it was a it was a, a really good um, session. Uh, the the uh, the Jim uh, Takelet uh, phenomenon. You could you could say a little bit. Richard, you got your hand up. Go ahead. I was just going to add on to the business jet part of what Ron had to say. The one uh, recurring theme, both at NBAA and um, and of course in the earnings announcement, uh, is that the good news, the silver lining, probably the only silver lining coming out of all the supply chain problems that are plaguing our entire industry, is that for the first time ever. Um, it's that the BizJet Primes aren't able to uh, engineer their own bus cycle, as you, as it were, by over-delivering. You know, normally when times are good and backlogs are substantial, people tend to go a bit nuts. And historically, it's been kind of Bombardier that broke the code in the past. 
uh, followed by a lot of other folks. Um, that doesn't appear to be feasible this time, whether for reasons of the you know production delays or uh, program certification delays or what have you, what have you. So this could be a a smoother and uh, gentler upward ride, or at least a, a stable plateau with good pricing for the business yet industry. No matter how concerned people are about uh, you know a post pandemic normalization, as Ron put it, in terms of uh, demand. Yeah, if I could just jump back in on that, you know, just following up on Richard. I mean. That really is the silver lining on this for business aviation. I mean, business aviation is in a, I think, a very different position than large commercial because the business jet manufacturers do build whitetails, right? Unlike Boeing and Airbus, who typically don't, they build whitetails all the time. And that's sort of how their business model works. And this situation in, in, in the supply chain really forces them not to make too many of them. And that's, you know, in the end, that's good for everybody, right? So, yeah, I'm with Richard there 100%. Sash, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. Uh, Safran uh, reported, uh, Saab reported, you were very happy with their margins. I should point out Safran, uh, but, you know, puts out uh, revenue numbers. They don't put out uh, earnings mechanics, uh, right? I mean, they still stick to that uh, half-year uh, European model. Uh, and MTU uh, also posted, and these companies are critical to the ecosystem, whether for RTX or for GE. Kind of walk us through what we saw from European uh, industry and and what it means. Yeah, um, so, I mean, the, look, there were there were four interesting uh, companies reporting in Europe. I mean, let, let's compare and contrast Safran and MTU first of all. Who are the you know two of the big uh, European aero engine producers? I mean, you know, you say, you say Safran is important to the GE um, ecosystem. I think um, you, you know Safran might justifiably argue that certainly on the CFM fifty six and the Leap, GE is quite important to their ecosystem. You know, it is a fifty fifty joint venture. Unlike any, unlike any other program. Um, and once GE Aerospace is spun out, it's not going to be a lot different in size to Safran, you know, in, term, in terms of revenues. And I think that's going to make for some very interesting comparisons. And uh, I think it's going to change the dynamic of the relationship between the two companies quite a lot. It's been very easy for GE when it's been part of a much, much larger organization to, um, uh, you know, to appear to some stakeholders investors if it's the sort of the lead on on uh, cfm 56 and leap but um once it's a pure aero engine company you're going to be able to make absolute apples and apples comparisons with uh safran and uh, i think that you know um, that'll be good for both companies frankly um so two very different messages coming out of safran and, and mtu this uh, this week safran uh, numbers were good, uh, you know, and it's a very, very well managed business indeed. And uh, they're being incredibly conservative in terms of uh, any sort of profit recognition on the on the LEAP program at the moment. So really, the vast majority of the profits that you're seeing coming through in Safran reflects e engines delivered somewhere between five and 15 years ago, predominantly CFM 56s, which are generating very, very high levels of spares. Here's the caveat. Um, they put the spares price increase, they and GE, because they're in lockstep on this, they put spares price increase in in August, which means that um, probably Q3 was the best in terms of orders and in terms of spares deliveries, because that's, you know, you, you announce the spare, spares increase in August, airlines come and just order as fast as possible so they get the old prices. Um, so I think it's going to make Q4 quite interesting. Our takeaways from the call for Safran, though, were that, yes, business is going very well. But they are much more worried about inflation, much more worried about supply chain, I think probably than we expected. Um, supply chain is incredibly gritty. 
it's not that there are single points of near failure, although everybody references the fact that forgings and castings, you know, they would love more of them sooner. But it, I think it, it's much more gritty across the whole system that you get lumps, bumps, and they don't have a lot of confidence that they can ramp up faster than expectations, certainly at the moment. And I've been inclined to, to believe them. But so Safran was talking very much about broad industrial manufacturing issues. MTU is the mirror image of RTX Technologies. I mean, it's the, it's the junior partner to RTX. It's got 18% only of the um, gear turbo fan engine. Like RTX, MTU's core was utterly dominated by the, by the gear turbo fan. I mean, really, nobody wants to talk about anything else. Our big takeaway here, MTU is, again, is a, is a very sensible uh, bunch of highly competent engineers, and it's run very, very conservatively. Very hard to come away from the call, though, without thinking that they are not just a price taker from uh, Pratt & Whitney, but they're also an information taker. They know less about the gear turbofan and the relationship with Airbus and the relationship that the Pratt & Whitney has with airlines than Pratt does by quite a long way. The big data point coming up is going to be when first Pratt and then um, MTU overhaul, do big, heavy overhauls of the faulty gear turbofans. Um, MTU said it's going to be sometime in December. Um, Pratt comes first and then they do. And at that stage, they're going to have better visibility, they, they believe, as to whether they can turn around these engines uh, inside the sort of 250 to 300 day wing to wing time that uh, that they've been uh, talking about to investors and committing to huge airlines, or actually whether it's just going to take that long and you know they're going to have to suck it up all within the you know around six billion dollar envelope uh, that this process is is due to cost. So I think that was the that was the big message coming out of MTU. But I would highlight um, you know Ron talked about RTX doing big uh, share uh, share share buybacks to effectively support the share price. MTU was asked about that two days later. You know, are you going to do a share buyback to support your share price? And they were horrified at the question and just said we couldn't conceive of doing that when we are, we, MTU, but by implication, RTX as well are in the depths of the, of the GTF crisis and we still haven't um, got their arms completely around the, uh, the scope of the programme. It, it's a very, very interesting comparison uh, in terms of how the two companies think or are forced to think about shareholder returns. Um, and I, you know, I think MTU came across as being very, very prudent indeed. But um, you know, the share price came off a bit after popping on the results. And um, that, that seems a bit of a shame. Look at defense now. Kongsberg, big message from Kongsberg, the defense buildup is going to go for much longer than they had previously forecast. They now are pretty much in the, uh, the school that, that Europe is in a defence super cycle. And defence super cycle is increasingly being defined by companies or acknowledged by companies as being into the 2030s. Um, Saab right. absolutely emphasised the big message coming out from the NATO procurement conference um, about a week and a half ago, which was that uh, what is required is uh, more of everything faster. And the particular granular item that we were really interested in is they said for a lot of the orders they're getting on, not just on radars, but also anti-armor and ground combat and air defense missiles and so forth, 
the orders that they're receiving are bigger than they expected when they first put in the proposal. So they, you know, they, they get the order, but actually the customer pluses it up because the customers are realizing um, that this is a very, very long game and uh, that you know they, they need to um, they need to be ordering more rather than sort of penny pinching uh, um, around the margins. That's a really powerful message coming through. Right. Um, and uh, I'm going to uh, come back around on that uh, in a moment. Richard, I'm, I want to just bring you in and, and sort of what are some of the things uh, that you saw in your sense uh, on earnings, uh, you know, whether on the engine side or, you know, some of the challenges, uh, obviously, Boeing has been having on the defense side of things, as we heard Ron say, uh, the Air Force One replacement, you, you know, I mean, even even at the time, w- there were folks who warned if you buy already built airplanes and modify them, under the guise of trying to save money, you're not going to save money. Uh, anyway, discuss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so take take it in that. any direction you want. I just felt like that editorial <laughs> comment, right? Something we knew was a bad idea. Yeah. And so was, it was just a bad idea. It was a bad idea executed at a time when there was tons and tons of commercial revenue and um, the max was fine and everything was fine and everything was great with the world. Um, oh, boy. You know, first of all, per run, yeah, how do you lose all that money with two planes, maybe three? <laughs> it's just bizarre. But even stranger is that they blamed a lot of it on talent, you know, labor. Uh, it doesn't seem labor intensive to me. I mean, yeah, you need a lot of skilled technicians to work on a couple of planes. The rest would seem to be development risk or, you know, obviously uh, contractor coordination, given the problems they had with the interior provider and all of that story. So I, I don't see how labor factored. I guess they found a way, but boy, there's so much going on here. And you know, the good news, of course, is as we were discussing before, you know, extension of KC forty six. That's about the only happy story. But beyond this, it's it's tough to regard BDS as kind of this. I don't want to say chamber of horrors, but a lot of really bad stuff that doesn't seem rescuable until they start winning some of the new NGAD FAXX or subset you know or 40 percent shares of either or cca or you know for that matter um you know kcz who knows maybe they're bidding on that there's so much they need to do for the future and until then just wow i mean i didn't have uh you know the same conversation that uh, that ron did with brian west maybe they do have a way forward but given the track record this has become a, a real show me story um terms of uh, everything else boy sash's comments about the differentiation between rtx and mtu on fair buybacks relative to throwing money at the problem and solving it uh, absolutely fascinating uh, completely agree but also the term sash used you know what they need to do investor expectations this is a fascinating moment in the the contrast of economic systems almost between europe and the u.s the world is not flat and uh, what RTX needs or feels it needs to do to please investors is clearly very different from what MTU uh, has to do. So that that to me was utterly fascinating. Uh, that was uh, that was uh, very uh, very well done. Uh, ten uh, ten points uh, on sticking the landing. Uh, a quick word to our audience to check out our award winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, 
Sash, if I, if I can just quickly uh, go back to you, right? I mean, um, before uh, the program uh, started, uh, we talked a little bit about munitions uh, shortfalls. And, and um, Admiral Rob Bauer, the chairman uh, of uh, the NATO military committee, um, has pointed out that we can actually see the bottom of the barrel, right? He was warning that we're um, you know, supplying globally from stocks that were half depleted, uh, we are now at A and B model AMRAMs to use in NASAMs. There is consideration of bringing Hawk uh, back with some modifications so the Ukrainians have something to shoot at the Russians. Um, and when it comes to munitions, munitions that were being pulled from American stockpiles in Israel uh, have made a U-turn. You know, we're going to Ukraine and have made a U-turn and are going back uh, to uh, Israel. Talk to us about the impact and whether or not we run out of bullets before the other guy runs out of bullets because the other guy has North Korea supplying them with bullets and has Iranians supplying them with munitions. Uh, and they have a closed ecosystem that really has shifted to a war economy. So they can actually make more stuff and probably are delivering more stuff more quickly uh, than we are. Walk, walk us through that sentiment. And yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, sorry, and how I mean, we address it. Yeah, look, there's, there's, there's actually two linked issues here. I mean, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, if the, the Russians have probably got deeper stocks of some munitions types, uh, and particularly dumb, dumb artillery ammunition, and dumb artillery ammunition um, used uh, in eight sufficient quantities has a, a real power of its own. Um, but it's been very interesting, and this was one of the themes that came out of the DSEI show, and the best uh, presentation I went to at, at DSEI was actually one about artillery, um, with a Ukrainian, a Brit, and a French Frenchman, um, all artillery experts, and they were very, very uh, clear that the Ukrainians are doing a much better job of interdicting uh, Russian uh, supplies, and really, in this case, that means artillery ammunition uh, early on, which is why rates of firing are at, at the moment way below uh, his, you know, recent peaks. Um, but we shouldn't get complacent about that. Talking to companies this week, um, because we had the, an opportunity to talk to a number of companies um, specific about munitions. You know, the comment, the comment from Admiral Bauer is absolutely right. We are starting to see the bottom of the, the barrel in some cases. And if you think about where the U.S. has been supplying from, it's been supplying from very, very big stocks in Israel. Not available anymore because those stocks have to be kept, in, um, uh, both used by the Israelis, but also used by the US, potentially used uh, in the, you know, in the uh, Middle East region. So suddenly that has been turned off. Korea, um, her, you know, there's clearly been some drawdowns from the big stocks held in Korea. That may be a source, but um, you don't want to take that too low because that sends all sorts of false signals to uh, China and then the US itself. Um, uh, but, you know, and that's probably one of the other areas where stocks are, are low. This is a big issue for European countries. European countries are beginning to realise, and as always with Europe, far too late, but you know, still better late than never, that um, the, the US is not a, a bottomless barrel, a bottomless bucket of, uh, of supplies. And I think this, this comes back to that comment that Saab made, but also a couple of other companies made this week, which is that as European countries are placing orders, they're placing much bigger orders for individual natures than they otherwise uh, than they would have expected them to do. This is the, you know, this is the flywheel starting to spin up. And the companies that I think have been smartest in the last 18 months 
had been the companies that had been placing big orders to their own suppliers for uh, precursor chemicals, for uh, components, for castings, um, you know, fuses, all that stuff. And they've been basically taking the cost in their own working capital. And you know, there are some investors, bond investors hate that because they say, hey, wait, you know, your free cash flow is short, your debt's too high, dreadful. Well, I'm very sorry. You know, those investors are just totally out of court. This is what has to happen in a wartime situation. And we're now starting to see those companies that have invested heavily in their own working capital benefiting because they can actually deliver next quarter, quarter after the quarter after, because they've got the stocks in already and more power to them on that. Uh, so I'm actually quite, I'm quite positive on this because I think that countries are starting to realise what they've got to do in Europe. And Europe's always had an ability to mess up on that. The companies that are doing the right things are being rewarded for it. Um, and it's still going to be a bit, bit nail-biting as to, uh, you know, who, who prevails um, against Russia. But I, I don't see it as, you know, the Russians have got a lot of stuff. Can they deliver it? I think that's, but you know, questionable. Uh, Ron, uh, you've got your hand up. Uh, go ahead as we uh, drive uh, toward the finish line. Go ahead. One point I wanted to bring up, and um, this kind of harkens back to just a previous discussion on defense. One interesting trend we've seen across most of the defense contractors, you know, Lockheed was hit by some fixed price development. Raytheon, or excuse me, Lockheed was hit by some fixed price development. RTX was hit by fixed price development. We all know Boeing was, is, still is, um, but they all were, and, and Northrop was too. <clears throat> so I think one of the interesting things that, that Boeing has said, this was reiterated at our, our dinner this week, Boeing's not going to do any fixed price development programs, period. Now, what's interesting about that is if you look at FAXX, NGAD, Northrop's comments about, you know, about pulling out of NGAD, um, it, it, it seems like if you look at when kind of this just last generation of stuff came out, that there was a push towards fixed price development again, even though we all kind of know its shortcomings and and now the industry seems to be reacting that hey you know what that was a bad idea um i guess we all kind of knew it was a bad idea and we affirmed it was a bad idea um so as we look at what happens now with ngad and faxx and whatever else comes bumping down the pipe um there'll probably be pressure from the industry back on dod to do the the development portions of these of these programs in ways that are, are maybe more palatable We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Richard, real quick, uh, news reports the Saudis uh, are interested in Rafals. And talk to us more broadly, uh, right? We're having Arab governments that are beginning to condemn Israel uh, in the wake of Israel's uh, attack on Hamas, uh, in the wake of Hamas's deadly terror attacks on uh, Israel's single bloodiest day for um, Israel and, and, and Jews since the Holocaust. Um, talk to us a little bit about what the Saudis want, why the Rafal, and whether you think there might be some bigger blowback uh, on U.S. arms sales to an important region and a region that's been making it increasingly clear that they'll play footsie with China if they want to, and Russia. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot going on, of course. You know, from the Saudi standpoint, they've got a requirement for about 400 jets. A lot of the two, 350 or so they have an inventory or aging. They've got this requirement to balance between U.S. and European suppliers. The only thing that makes any sense, frankly, is a Rafale order. But even there, there are big challenges because, you know, from a political standpoint, Macron is being as... Uh, you know, uh, emphasizing Israel and the importance of protecting it against the terror threat as the U.S. is. So I'm not sure the political narrative is uh, uh, quite correct here, especially since the reason they can't get Eurofighter French, too, is that the Germans have said, actually, Saudi Arabia, you have a truly disgusting human rights record in Yemen and wherever else, and we're not selling to you. So <laughs> I think the whole political thing is immensely complicated. Rafael, however, makes a lot of sense because no matter how much, uh, you know, bias which way or the other that can be, be perceived, at the end of the day, the great virtue of buying a French plane is that you don't have to ask for the keys to use it. That's the way it's been for many decades. And uh, I'm sure the Saudis like that. Now, again, they can't get this thing till 2030. 30. At this point, the supply chain problems coupled with an enormous backlog. I mean, it's the same number as Egypt. And Egypt, you know, got 54 early on. But, you know, India, UAE all have Qatar, all have uh, priority here. So it's it's not really clear that this is a solution. You know, for the long run, my sort of pet favorite idea, you know, enormously fraught with complication. But if the Saudis thought strategically about arms suppliers, they might say, hey, Turkey's got this idea for a combat aircraft, the Khan. Uh, they can't fund it. Probably not anyway. Uh, we can help them do it. It'll take many years. There'll be big problems. But you know what? And by the year 2040 something, it will solve a lot of our problems. <laughs> so I, I think they might want to think strategically long term, but in the short term, in a world of really bad options, Rafael is probably the least bad. Huh. That's an excellent uh, way of uh, putting it. Uh, Sash, do you have a, a, a very quick point you want to make on that before we go to Ron and end it on beta technologies? It clearly puts pressure, particularly on Germany, because what this says is, Germany, if you don't release Eurofighter, uh, then we can go somewhere else. What it also does, um, which I think is really interesting, is this reignites the tensions over SCAF. Um, uh, right. You know, part of the issues with SCAF is, uh, you know, can France export anywhere they want or does Germany have a, a, a veto on uh, future exports of SCAF? And this sort of, you know, I think this stirs that particular pot in a, in a particularly potent way. Um, so, yeah, you know, Richard's absolutely right. I think for the Saudis, having to get in line behind the Qataris and the UAE is not going to be a terribly pleasant thing. But Dassault's production system is pretty inflexible. Three, four a month, that's what that's what they can do. That's what they're prepared to do. I can't see them increasing production to six a month, even for a Saudi order. So um I you know, I think there's you know, the noise is fascinating, but I think it's noise at the moment. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit like an F-35 problem as well, right? I mean, there is the demand, but the production is not surging to meet the demand. Uh, and that's why customers, uh, unfortunately, are going to have to wait uh, and pay premiums, premium pricing. Um, so, so supply and demand. Uh, Ron, we've got about a minute. Beta Technologies, your friend Kyle Clark founded the company in 2017 to change the business. Uh, and unlike uh, other names in this business, he's actually delivering the plane flew. Uh, the company flew its Aliyah aircraft, um, the conventional model, not the VTOL model from Vermont to Florida. Why is Beta the company to watch and what is it that they're doing that's different from what everybody else is doing? Because they've already got a couple of firm orders, right? I, I think it's UPS, Bristow, uh, Blade and, and United Therapeutics uh, have signed up. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's what's different about what they're doing is there's there's no hype, right? I mean, they're really just saying what they want to do and they're laying out what they have to do and then they're doing it. Um, and uh, you know, they've been kind of quietly doing this. It's not, you know, um, sort of some dog and pony show where they're being splashy out there and uh, and they're you know they're the way they're doing it's really clever and they they're plotting right along so. I mean, they demonstrated that they could take an electric aircraft and fly it over a, a long distance. They did that before. Um, last year, uh, they flew it from Burlington, Vermont to um, Bentonville, Arkansas. Um, you know, they, they had to stop along the way and recharge it. Uh, there's even ways you can operate a Leo in, in a hybrid mode. Um, so you can really go really long distances. Um, and, and if you think about how Beta's kind of positioned this, the first thing has really been around their customers are largely um, to move packages, moving goods around. Um, and it's well thought out how they're doing that. And then it, and if you think about what Beta's done, um, there's Beta charging stations. Uh, their network is growing. And if, if you think about anybody that wants to operate an electric aircraft, you're going to need those power stations. So um, they've thought it you know, from the ground up what they have to do. So I'm very encouraged by what they're doing. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, this, this one flight kind of, you know, is, is one interesting point along a journey that's gone kind of very well, uh, of, of what the, the folks up in Burlington are doing. Uh, and I should point out to the audience, uh, that, uh, the aircraft is going to be at Duke field, which is part of the Eglin complex over the next couple of months as the U S air force, uh, is, uh, studying, uh, the ALEA, uh, as it is, uh, a number of other competing, uh, EV tall aircraft, uh, guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, have a great day, a great week. Look forward to having you, uh, back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for hosting. Bargo. Yeah. Thanks. As always. All good. Great to be on Bargo. Thank you. Guys, thanks very much uh, again. Thanks very much to our audience for joining us, as you guys do every day. We'll be back again tomorrow. And a special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous sponsorship that makes uh, these programs possible. Uh, hope everybody has uh, a great evening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Have a great day.